He's always there. Through good times and bad, He's always there. Oh, come behold the works of God, the nations at His feet. He brings the bow and bends the spear and tells
Everybody is doing well today. Um, we uh, have a short, small topic of the entire Bible this morning, so it uh, should be a quick sermon. I think this will be an exciting sermon. Uh, we are going to cover essentially the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. As we, this morning, have been praying for the peace of Jerusalem and across the nations, we need to look, I think, once again, is that me popping or my beard popping? Sometimes my beard is, doesn't really like these uh, microphones. Um, we need to look once again at God's plan for the nations, revisit what the role the Jewish people had in this unique role and still have in this unique role, according to our scriptures. And we are also going to see and cultivate, hopefully, a challenge for you and I, a challenge of gaining the divine perspective of God's perspective for the nations, his heart for the world and his plan for the world. Yes, we're going to be talking straight scripture for the foreseeable few minutes, and I'm going to literally walk through the entire biblical story, almost have to skip some parts, just a few uh, 800 years or so. And as we reach the glorious end conclusion, I can only pray that we'll light a fire beneath us to understand all of our roles as missionaries and how God's vision for this earth lays claim on our lives, and even the orientation of our lives now. So, let's begin. The Bible is one long, unified story. And maybe you have not been taught to read it as such, but from cover to cover, we see one story in Scripture that continues to the next. Each book and each part of the Bible is kind of like one of these new, you know, long TV shows of sorts. Some episodes may seem to stand alone, but if you kind of look back, you see that there is one grand story that is being pursued. That is how the Scripture is. All the many stories that we find inside of its book, they come together in unison with Jesus Christ at the center. So if we are to properly gain God's perspective for this world and for the nations and why we even want to pray for something like peace, we need to see our world through his eyes. We need to examine everything from his perspective and thus gain his perspective. So I hope you're ready for this large sweep of scriptures uh, of the biblical narrative this morning. So let's begin with in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, the earth was the Lord's and the fullness thereof. All of it belongs to him as king and Lord over this earth. And he wanted to extend his rule and reign through his special creation, his image bearers, human beings. Genesis 1.26 says, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then he said, be fruitful and multiply, multiply, subdue this earth, have dominion 
over the fish of the sea and the birds. See the kingly and almost queenly, right, language given, have dominion over this world. However, the choice was set before his special creation. Would we really rule over this earth like God does? Will we try to take hold of the knowledge of good and evil by eating of the tree? And will we allow ourselves to be the very ones who would define what is good and evil rather than leaving such a divine task to God alone? Through the temptation of the serpent, we tried to rule this earth independently from God, and we were met with the curse of death, the curse of exile from the Garden of Eden, from God's place, the curse of the very exile from God's presence. Nevertheless, the commandments still stood, be fruitful, multiply, fill, and subdue this earth. And God did not completely abandon humanity, although perhaps he had every right to No. Like a loving father, he began his grand plan of redemption that would cover an untold amount of years, leading to its grand finale, which we will see at the end of our time today. So we have to fast forward. We can't cover every page, right? After death entered into our story through the murder of Abel by his brother Cain, after glimmers of hope in Enoch's avoidance of death in Genesis chapter 5, even though everyone around him was dying, And even though God wiped out the ancient world through a flood, sin remained in our human story. And through Noah's family, our fallen state and hard hearts continued on. Nations began forming all for Noah's family. In Genesis 10 through 11, we see the list of those nations. But however, they were not filling the world as God commanded But they were staying together and living in one place. They spoke one language, and in their fallen state, they only fed into one another's pride and became convinced that in their newfound arrogant unity, they could indeed overcome their fallen condition by what the ancients loved to do, which was have a massive building program. They considered that they could once again bridge the gap between humanity and God. They were convinced that they were the ones who could reunite themselves back to God by their own efforts and at their own majesty and creativity and their own strength and independence in building a tower tall enough could act as a sort of staircase to reach to heaven. God, knowing such pride and arrogance would only lead to their destruction, decided to break up the party. Graciously, his wrath was poured out by the confusion of languages. All people suddenly found themselves unable to communicate with one another. The confusion of languages led to the confusion of their building program, stalling their plans and thus dividing up humanity by language. And eventually we see ethnicity and geography and soon to be culture and nationality. The tower in the city was called Babel and has ever been since famous for its sinful fallout. If you're reading the book of Genesis as a close reader, by this time you should be kind of exhausted and also feeling a little hopeless. Okay, God, it appears you've actually just, you made it worse, right? Like what, what hope will there be for humanity in our sin if now they're split up all over the world and they can't now communicate with one another and now they're even more divided? Maybe this fallen state, maybe it's hopeless. But however... We find ourselves in the very next chapter of Genesis, chapter 12, with the next phase of God's redemptive program, the singling out of a single man and his family who will become a nation and also a single plot of land. Not as an end to itself, but as you will see, 
His family and this plot of land must serve as a vehicle to continue his mission to reclaim the world to himself. A pagan star-worshipping man named Abram appears out of nowhere in Genesis 12. And God says to him some of the most important words found in our Bibles. He says, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. God was not going to bless Abraham for Abraham's sake, but rather he was going to use him to bring a blessing to the entire world. And maybe after all, Babel might be reversed, and humanity could be united again before God through this man's family. To multiply Abraham into a great nation sounds kind of like God's command to Adam and Eve to multiply And to bring a blessing to the world kind of sounds like God's commandment to fill the earth. But there is a new development in the story here. A call to a specific family and a specific land given to this family. Now for the sake of time, we have to skip over uh, about 800 years of biblical history. Abraham's grandson Jacob is renamed Israel. He has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And after extraordinary events... At the end of Genesis, some of the best storytelling you could ever read in any book. At the end of Genesis and through the book of Exodus, 400 years of history, Israel multiplies into the millions, and eventually they do receive the land that was promised. After conquering the land, four centuries of ups and downs of godly leadership and fallouts of wise and also unwise judges, Israel becomes a kingdom governed by kings. After Saul's kingship, the first king of Israel, David becomes king. And even though he himself was a fallen man with many blemishes like you and I, he becomes known as a man after God's own heart. And after him, his son Solomon becomes king. And for our purposes this morning, I want to slow down and look at Solomon because this is a fascinating time in biblical history. I've been storytelling here for a few minutes and we skipped over so many things, I know. But for the purposes this morning, I want to look at Israel beneath Solomon because it seems as if God's world redemptive plan may have been happening. It was seemed to be starting beneath Solomon. In 1 Kings 4, we see some crazy things start happening. It says, Judah and Israel were as many as a sand by the sea. 1 Kings 4.20, be fruitful, multiply. Well, it seems to be happening with, this, with God's people. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms, from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and they served Solomon all the days of his life, 1 Kings 4.21. And then after Solomon had built the temple when he was consecrating it, he even prayed a most interesting prayer as he was praying for his own people and for their commitment to be beneath God and underneath his law. He says this, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, when he comes and prays towards this house here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all of which that foreigner calls you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people, Israel. And that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Now remember, I know we're a little bit of a classroom this morning, right? But it'll be something for you. Remember this blessing for the nations that was going to come through Abraham's family? It seems that they were anticipating this is going to happen. 
the nations are going to be brought beneath Israel's rule. And if this were to continue, then surely enough, God is going to restore humanity underneath his kingship and lordship once again. People will hear of him through this small nation. And as Psalms 2 said of a coming king of Israel, he said, As for me, I will make the nations your, inherit, your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Psalms 2 verse 8. And it seemed to be happening. But the world is going to be his once again through this unique people, the Hebrews, the nation of Israel. Through his family, indeed, all the nations will eventually receive this knowledge of God. And as the prophet Habakkuk foresaw, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, Habakkuk 2.4. Psalm 72 says a similar prayer, blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. But one issue remains in this redemptive plan, our sinful hearts. And Solomon, like his father, began making mistakes, and he made a few hundred mistakes, if you will. He joined himself in marriage to hundreds of women. He enlisted all these women to, uh, they, he was not even married to, to be his concubines. And they were probably young and beautiful women, handpicked by the king, and they did not worship the God of Israel. And they began straying Solomon's heart away from his Lord. As he approached death, he found himself estranged from God, and his son Rehoboam took the kingdom. He proved to be immediately inadequate, not up to the task. He responded poorly to some civic uh, uh, mistakes that his father made, thus leaving the nation split in two, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, we had to hit fast forward yet again. Israel's influence in the region began decreasing as the nation was split in two. The two nations of Israel and Judah were at constant war with one another and with other nations. Centuries went by and sin still reigned. The northern kingdom of Israel eventually was exiled due to their sin and constant rebellion against God, and they were sent as captives to the land of Assyria. 140 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah was also exiled to the world then, the then world powers of Babylon. All because Torah was continually broken, all because their hearts were far from him, even after warning after warning from the prophets. Now, you may be asking, if you're a careful reader, what about these promises from God to Abraham? What about this blessing for the world? What about his own people? How is God going to use this tiny plot of land and its people for any sort of global blessing to all families of this world? We still have language, don't forget about that, is the dividing factor from the nations. Only briefly do we see Israel's influence begin expanding over the other nations. Sin is still present, and now God's chosen people are even exiled from the land. And his presence had left the temple, as you see in Ezekiel, and even the temple then was destroyed. But however, Isaiah knew that God was far from done with Israel and with the Jews and his redemptive plan to bring salvation to the world through them. He spoke of someone to come, a leader of Israel, a king for the lineage of David and his father Jesse, who would pick up this mantle where Israel had failed. As their leader, he would come to do the very things that Israel is unable to do, fulfilling their role and being solely devoted to Yahweh God in order that all the nations may be redeemed and also all the scattered of Israel would be brought back to himself. Isaiah had this to say, in that day, the root of Jesse, Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, 
and his resting place will be glorious. Isaiah 4, 42, verse 6, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up as the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will set you, speaking to Israel, as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And after Isaiah's famous passage concerning the suffering servants in Isaiah 53, the Messiah who was to come, he famously told Israel this. He said, enlarge the place of your tent, Isaiah 54, verses 2 through 3, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. Your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. But 70 years of exile went by. A small portion of the exiled Jews returned to their land. They would not be large in number. And aside from a brief period, they would no longer be a sovereign nation. All the promises, however, remained. The world still remained divided in languages and ethnicities, and Israel was still just a little glimmer of its former glory. What would now happen as the book of Lamentations ends uh, by the author saying, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, unless you have utterly rejected us. Different psalms speak of just the despair of this period, saying, Lord, where are you? But then God's finger begins stirring the world in unique ways, as the prophet Daniel foretold in chapter 11 especially. Between our Old and New Testaments were 400 years. And those years began with a mighty man named Alexander the Great who arose out of the small nation of Greece to conquer most of the known world, all before he was 33 years old. After a sudden death, his kingdom shattered into various pieces, creating more tensions of war and disparity in the world. And then the unmatched strength of, the, of iron and power arose with the mighty Romans who swept through where Alexander the Great left off and united the world in peace by their sword, imitation, and war. Now Israel throughout these centuries were tossed to and fro by these world powers. All of God's promises remained, but when the dust settled, Israel found themselves as a mere province on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. Jerusalem's streets were filled with Roman soldiers, and Israel's prophets of old and the promises of God told to them seemed utterly out of reach. In this day, 2,000 years ago, the world was at peace. They called it Pax Romana, but it was a peace of fear. They were terrified of the monster that was Rome. And how could God's world redemption program through this people now come? Things seemed bleak until a child was born in a tiny town called Bethlehem, until a son was given to Judea, to Israel. Six centuries prior, Isaiah had foretold of a child who would bear the government on his shoulders, a child who would be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, there should be no end. He was quietly born by a poor young woman, and rumors began spreading of shepherds alone in fields, seeing legions of angels pronouncing the praise of his child of other angelic visitations and dreams coming to this unmarried woman and her fiancé, of a pregnancy from God's spirit and no man, even of foreign visitors from distant lands traveling all the way to Bethlehem to worship this king of the Jews. Isaiah even foretold that event, saying in Isaiah 60, verse 6, a multitude of camels shall come to you, young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news shall bring the gospel, the praises of the Lord. 
As this child grew for 30 years, he worked as any other man. And perhaps the rumors were taken to just be mere rumors and nothing more. But then a wild-eyed, camel-hair-wearing man living in the wilderness, who I would love to hang out with if I was alive in those days because he was part of being a crazy guy. And I like crazy people. He was living in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance of sin, claiming that he himself was preparing the way of the Lord. And people began to wake up and wonder what may have been coming. Is it time for Israel to overthrow the Romans and take up the mantle of a light to the nations? Was God's plan about to unfold? And then the focus transferred from this wild-eyed man, John the Baptist, to the unknown carpenter, carpenter, his cousin Jesus. After Jesus' baptism, he immediately began claiming the kingdom of God was here. It was at hand. It was right before them. And everyone should be repenting of their sins and turning. And he began healing people, healing the blind, casting out demons, even raising people from the dead. Being sent only to Israel, nevertheless, foreigners began traveling to, to, uh, to be healed, to hear the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And on various instances, like in Matthew chapter 4, people not only from Jerusalem and Judea, but from Roman cities and from Syria and beyond were flocking to him to be healed. After three years of ministry of traveling with his 12 companions, this man began speaking of his impending death. And everyone was confused. Wasn't this our new king? Wasn't he going to take the throne in Jerusalem and restore Israel to independence, become this vessel that could expand the glory of God amongst this world to bring the nations back to him? How could he do this if he were to die? He was crowned as king. His crown being one of thorns and his robe being wrapped around his beaten body in mockery. He was crucified by these professional executors of Rome. The Jewish religious leaders missed the day of God's visitation, and only a few of Christ's friends and his mother uh, were with him as he died on that cross, naked, bloodied, and bruised. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as a poor man was buried in a rich man's tomb. And at this point, all hope seemed lost. But once again, whispers began spreading. Whispers of unbelievable rumors that the man who was just professionally executed by the Romans who do not make mistakes in their killing and their crucifying, they're claiming that uh, behind this sealed tomb that were even guarded by the Romans, that some women had found it empty. And the angels had announced its vacancy to the women, and some of them even claimed to have seen this Christ alive. And soon enough, he revealed himself to all his disciples and announced that a new day was coming, a new era, a new way, as we sung earlier. But he must leave and ascend first back to heaven. Stay in Jerusalem, he told his, his disciples, and you will receive power from the Holy Spirit. And you must be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Sumeria, and to the ends of the earth. And from there, he ascended back into heaven. Now, let's take a break. The remaining disciples from Jesus' ministry has shrunk to about 120, maybe about the size of us in this room here. The world was still divided by languages. The vast majority were still Gentiles who had no knowledge of God. And we are still waiting for God to reclaim the nations as, uh, through this Jewish people of Israel. And if you are a careful reader, you would have recognized Jesus' words of a witness to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Something new was coming 
And as these 120 people were gathering and worshiping during the Jewish celebration of Pentecost, suddenly a wind from on high fell on them. Tongues of fire appeared, and the Holy Spirit filled them as they spoke in various languages. Due to the feast outside of the room were people from all nations under heaven gathered in Jerusalem. It says in Acts 2 verse 9, it says there were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. They were hearing in their own languages from these 120 Jews in this room up there who the Holy Spirit had just fallen on. They were all hearing in their own words the mighty works of God. Shouldn't this remind you of a certain event in Genesis where all hope seemed lost in this divided world of languages? Do you now see that through Abraham's family, the Christ had come, and through the Jewish people on this event at Pentecost, God had supernaturally reversed the Tower of Babel. Peter preached the good news that morning. 2,000 became Christians on that day, and as Pentecost ended, many of them returned to their homes throughout the world, carrying the Spirit with them, and the new work of God had begun. God had shown himself to be true. He was indeed reclaiming the nations. But it was unexpected, and that this was not a political revolution, but a spiritual one, by the Spirit, one person and one community at a time. There were witnesses to the grand and glorious good news that Jesus Christ, a descendant from King David, came down from heaven and took on flesh, that he lived a perfectly righteous life on our behalf. He took the iniquities of us all on his own shoulders, on our behalf, And suffered greatly, not for his sins, which were none, but for our own, which are many. But God loosened the pangs of death, as King David also, who was a prophet, was told that one of his ascendants would always be on the throne. And this Jesus was risen from the dead to fulfill that prophecy. And after his defeat of death, he ascended into high from heaven. And the beginning of the last days had become through the unleashing of the Holy Spirit on the world for those who believe in Christ and cast their allegiance to him as their king and Lord. And that, my friends, is the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we come to a close on the back end of this sermon, after so many dramatic events in the the book of Acts and the challenges of seeing God's people suddenly be also including Gentiles grafted in, non-Jews by birth being grafted into this family, our New Testament ends with the most creative, poetic, and amazing book, I think, of the whole Bible, I think, the revelation of Jesus Christ to John. He catches glimpses of many things, but one of them is of heaven itself, God's place, and this is what he sees. And this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and from the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is indeed the mission of God to reclaim the nations for himself. And you and I in this age of the church find ourselves in a graciously, graciously long 2,000-year period of this season of being a witness of the life and of the death and of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, our King and our Lord Jesus, to the ends of the world. But the job is still not done. However, living in America, and also as our churches 
here in Delaware, close to an urban city, as one of our elders, Jim Thompson, often reminds me, which is so true, we find ourselves in a, such a unique place of America that the nations, they've been brought to our doorstep. The ends of the earth have been sent to us here. As long as Jesus' feet have not returned and touched down on this world, his command to the apostles had become our command to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and to the ends of the earth. But wait a minute, you may be saying. What about the Jews? Has God rejected them? Have we just like kind of moved on in this story? At one point in our New Testament, Paul, he anticipates this question as he is talking about these grand and wonderful things that we are talking about this morning in the book of Romans. And he says this, I ask then, has God rejected his people that he brought all these wonderful things through? Well, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. At the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. And he continues on as we consider the need to pray for the Jewish people today and also their need for Jesus. We, we especially pray for that highly. For Paul continues on to say these amazing words. So we ask that they stumble in order that they might fall. By no means. But rather through their trespasses, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. But now if their trespasses means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more would their full inclusion mean? If that doesn't drive you to want to pray for the Jewish people, that they may meet Jesus, I don't know what should. Romans 11, verses 25 to 26. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. God is not done with that family of Abraham. As we, even in this sanctuary, there are many people from the, uh, that are Jewish and they love Jesus. We know that God is not done with them. And as we see his call even to the nations, as we are even sent to our neighbors, as we are sent to be witnesses to this world, we know that there's a time awaits when this partial hardening will be removed from Israel. And according to Paul, they will meet the Messiah. And when that day comes, you better believe the world will feel the effects. And as we close, a few things I want to pray for. We pray for peace. We pray for peace for Jerusalem and Israel. Peace for the world, our nation. Because when people die, people die when there isn't peace. And wherever a death occurs of someone who does not know Jesus, our hearts should shatter. This is why in 1 Timothy 2, Paul connects praying for our nation's leaders, and he connects it with peace, and connects peace then to mission and evangelism. And this is why Christians should abhor war, an unnecessary war, because if people die in war that don't know Christ— they are going to be eternally separated from him. So Lord Jesus, please maintain peace. We also know that missions and evangelism is not the ultimate aim for the church, but something else is ultimate. Uh, the author John Piper famously said this. He says, missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate and not man. When this age is over, and countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. Missions exist because worship doesn't. God is reclaiming the nations for himself through you and I. 
by the power and giftings of the Holy Spirit, in order that all peoples one day may stand before him. We pray and worship, as we saw in Revelation, people from all tribes and tongues. You and I all have a part to play. You and I all have a crucial role to play in this body of Christ. And may all that we've heard this morning light a fire in us for evangelism, for we know that those without Christ will indeed experience eternal separation from him. We mourn for those who do not know him. We desire to see all people, especially the Jews, God's chosen people, to know the wonders and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Jesus, we love you so much. And Lord, we thank you that you have not abandoned this world, Lord. Your story of redemption as found in Scripture is indeed, it is truly amazing, Lord. And we stand here, Lord, knowing that we are your ambassadors, Lord, as we live in just such tumultuous times, as we live in just a day of just in, uh, craziness, Lord, the uh, craziness that we have just not seen, Lord, in our own nation's borders in, in a long time. Lord, we pray that this time could be ripe, Lord, for the gospel to shine forth in our nation. We pray, Lord, as these events unfold, as, your, as the day of your, of your return is always a question mark, Lord. You, you said that we won't, we won't know the day or the hour, Lord, but Lord, we, we do pray that you would come soon, Lord. And we think of the Jews, Lord, and those who don't know you in the Jewish community, Lord, that we pray for a radical time of a generation where they may know you, Lord, in mass conversion. They may meet you, Jesus, in mass. Lord, we may see that day even happen in our times, Lord. So we do pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the safety and security, Lord, of your people. And Lord, we pray for us, Lord, in our own zip code here in Wilmington. Lord, all these truths, they, are, they have global impacts, Lord, but we, week to week, day to day, Lord, even our neighbors, Lord, so many of them don't know you. They don't find themselves in pews worshiping you on a Sunday morning, Lord. Their hearts are still distant. They don't know the truth of their humanity, of who they really are as bearers of your image, Lord. They don't know the joys of being reconciled to you, Lord. May we live as a witness, Lord. I witness in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. We love you, Jesus, so much. We pray this in your good name. Amen. We have one more song in closing, and we have a special treat at the end of our service. I'm 
our hands in worship we raise our hands in praise that's how battles are won for us we give you glory and honor we remind you of the power of your word we remind you of what you did for us and what you're going to do again and again and again and again and again because you love us why I don't know but I'm so thankful You paid the price for every one of us. You paid the price through the shedding of blood. Unless there was the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. You gave your own blood for us. 
you did it all for us. Wow. Let the reality come into the youth of today, oh God. Let that reality come into our parents, oh God. Our aunts, our uncles, our brothers, our sisters, our children, oh God. That reality to change a life. To change where we'll spend eternity. Thank you, Lord.